The following is a conversation between Kalanit Ballas, President and CEO of the ALS Association, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Every one of us is anxious and concerned for our loved ones and for ourselves because of the COVID-19 crisis. But there can be an extra level of concern if you have ALS. And to provide us some perspective on this, as well as what her organization is doing in this crisis to respond, it's a pleasure to have with us Colinit Ballas, the president and CEO of the ALS Association. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Colinit. Well, thank you for having me. Nice to chat with you today. You know, before we discuss the current situation, tell us about <laughs> ALS and the work of the ALS Association. Sure, I'd be happy to. So ALS is often known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease, which takes away an individual's ability to move their muscles. So over a course of time, anywhere between two and five years, someone might lose their ability to walk, to move their hands, to speak, and to breathe. And eventually that person passes away usually from some type of disease within the lungs. And that happens very quickly, like I said, within two or five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ALS Association is based in the United States. Our national office is in Washington, DC, and we have 39 chapters across the country. We serve people living with ALS and their families and caregivers every day. We also fund research both in the US and globally and you know, we're based in Washington, so of course we are huge in advocacy going up to Capitol Hill, as well as making sure that people have access to therapies, to care, both locally and domestically. So we're a, what I always call a 360 organization, care, yeah. research, and policy. Yeah. Well, those who are living with ALS, they are certainly at greater risk. So are there any extra precautions that a person can take over and beyond the recommendations we hear so frequently on the news? That's a great question. One of my other hats that I wear is the chair of the International Alliance for ALS and MND. And we recently had a panel discussion in which one of the researchers in the Netherlands, I think said on the call, maybe six times, stay home. Hmm. And while we hear that over and over again on the news here in the US for everybody, for people living with ALS and their caregivers around them, the most important thing is that they don't get exposed at all. So it's very, very important to make sure that you're monitoring people who are coming in and out of the house to care for that person, as well as making sure that the person who has ALS, unfortunately, isn't going out of the house at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your advocacy work, and a big mm-hmm. part of it was around non-invasive ventilators. Tell us about that campaign and the, the successful conclusion of that campaign. Yeah, we got a very uh, pleasant message last Friday that we won that campaign. It's been going on for nearly a year now where CMS had proposed competitive bidding for non-invasive ventilators. And probably not until recently were, were most Americans really even concerned about non-invasive ventilators. And now we see how important they are. This competitive bidding process would have made it very inaccessible for most people who needed them. And most importantly, would have taken away those very, very important respiratory therapists. So on Friday, we, we got good news that CMS 
decided to back down from that recommendation around competitive bidding. We've been working on this for a long time. I think COVID-19 certainly heightened that in the news and heightened the awareness around it and allowed us uh, for a really important win, not just for people with ALS, but for anybody who needs a non-inventive ventilator at this point. Well, congratulations. That's absolutely Thank fantastic. You. And that's going to be for three years, right? Right, right. So we'll, mm. so we're not going to stop. We're going to spend oh. the next three years making sure that that doesn't continue on after. <laughs> I, I had a hunch that would be the case. Of course, uh, of course. <laughs> Colleen, are there ways that you, and I guess by extension, your chapters have changed the service delivery model, reimagined it, if you will, to continue to deliver against mission during this pandemic? Absolutely. Almost overnight, uh, the way that we deliver service had to change. We did have some chapters that were already really leaning forward and progressive and telemedicine and and connecting with people in in their territories. And a lot of those reasons were because people either had a challenge meeting up, meaning traveling or going to a clinic was very difficult, or the territories were just so big. You know, some of our states are very large. So now, just across our country, we have ramped up very quickly through technology, through training, and reaching out through telemedicine and telehealth. Uh, We've done anything from virtual support groups, and what's been a nice surprise, I guess, when you're looking for silver linings in this situation is our support groups are even better attended now because Mm. of the individuals who couldn't actually physically go. So we're seeing actually a lot more engagement which is great. And we're also seeing a lot more opportunity for our staff to have one-on-one conversations where while they might be over Zoom or something else, those were conversations that weren't being had before. So we're taking it day by day and trying to get pretty creative as how we train people and actually train caregivers who are trying to use, you know, this sometimes very complicated equipment in their homes and trying to make sure that that equipment is safe for their loved ones. So we spend a lot of time also training through some of this telehealth, telemedicine type of work. So that's a new thing for us, but I think one that will probably stick around for quite some time to come. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I can see how this is going to amplify the way you've always conducted your work, even when you're able to conduct it the way you once did. Again, you know, in terms about reimagining things, one of the things you're going to have to reimagine, I would guess, is your fundraising. Because I'm familiar with your spring walk, which is a walk to defeat ALS, which raises a significant amount of money. How are you thinking about that? I think any organization like ours that spends a lot of time and effort on event fundraising or our walks, which raise significant amount of dollars for us, there's probably an audible pause and gasp across the country as to how do we reimagine that. And a lot of that, too, is moving towards online fundraising. So we're training our chapters up to do online walks and also a lot of very imaginative types of fundraisers that people are doing in their homes. I even saw somebody do a triathlon in in their house going from the bathtub to the backyard. So, So I think people are trying to get very creative. But again, long term, I think that this will change the way that nonprofits do fundraising and probably much more engaged, not just on the internet, but even things through social media, Instagram, Facebook has already been going up for quite some time now in the last couple of years, but I think we'll start seeing a different way that those platforms are used for fundraising, certainly in the immediate future. Yeah, that's interesting. 
What about the workplace? How has the way your team come together, virtually, no doubt, how, yeah. what things do you think are going to come from this shared experience that you'll take back to the workplace when we get back to the office that might be embedded and stick for quite some time? That's a really great question. So for us, the, the irony was when we had just moved our offices from downtown Washington to just across the river um, in Roslyn, Virginia. And everyone was very excited. We had been there maybe four or six weeks before we had to make sure everyone was working from home. But half our team was already teleworking from around the country. And so for that part of the team, they're very adept to it, but maybe not as engaged. And what, what I've noticed over the past few weeks is we are on video calls, <laughs> I want to say all day, every day. Now it's not just a matter of getting on a conference call. It's like, well, why aren't you on your screen? Are you mm. there? Are you engaged? So I foresee that happening going forward, regardless of where we're working from. The other thing I've noticed is I started doing a check-in with our team every Monday at the end of the day for half an hour, just a touch base, right? So that people could feel connected, understand what's the next week look like? Are we still working from home? What are we thinking? And just to kind of pulse check with how people are feeling. And that has really connected us over the past month or so as we've been doing this. I could see that that type of virtual check-in continues to go forward too. So I think that connectedness feeling, even for a short period of time, will be something that'll be embedded, at least in our workplace going forward. Yeah, I think you may be right about all that too. There does seem to be an interesting bonding coming about among mm -hmm. people who work in organizations, because I think we've always known each other very much through the corporate lens at the office. And right. now you're finding you're in somebody's home and their kids are <laughs> around and their dog is interrupting the call. And there just yeah. seems to be a much more holistic understanding of how people live and what their lives are like. And all that I just think is strengthening the bonds among colleagues. I couldn't agree more. And I think I was on another radio interview maybe a couple of weeks ago and, and my dog in the background, which could happen at any moment, gave kind of the sign off to everybody as we as we left the interview. Oh, there and, you go. Thank you for the heads up on that, by the way. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> but I also think it makes it makes us all more human when we just realize uh, the challenges that we have and the families that we're trying to help, not only in our homes, but outside of our homes. Like you said, it bonds us and it connects us and we see, oh, that person's a real person uh, in a way that I never saw before. And understanding yeah. the challenges that they have in their mm -hmm. life situations, you're probably more liable to cover for them right. when they get back to the office because they know what, they, what they're doing, you know, and they have an elderly parent or whatever it may be. Speaking of your staff, let's turn to your board. Yeah. Tell me about the relationship between a CEO and a board chair, and by extension, the full board, at a time like this, what's important, what needs to work? Communication. I, mean, I think it's that simple. Uh, I'm fortunate that I already have a really great, not only a board chair, but a great working relationship with her. We probably talk on the phone three or four times a day. It might be for three minutes. It might be for 30 minutes. It just depends on what's happening. And then by extension, that flexible ability to communicate with various parts of the board and board members to address whatever the situation is of the hour. So I feel really fortunate that our board is really engaged. 
involved and I'm very available to help think through some of these big decisions that we have to make. They're a great group of people that don't necessarily say this is what you have to do, but give great, great advice on what are some of the potential options we need to look at. And I could not do that without the relationship, not only with my board chair, but with our officers and the executive committee. So I feel very fortunate in good spot with that. Have you had a virtual board meeting yet? And if so, what was that like? Yeah, I actually just got off a virtual executive committee call. We have had one virtual board meeting. We'll have another one here in a few weeks. And I think that that will be the way going forward. We actually had the fortune of, we had been conducting our committee meetings virtually for the past year and a half or so. So it wasn't very unusual for our board. They're pretty used to it. But I will say with the board meeting, you know, it's usually some, some other bonding times, right? Whether you're having dinner together, having drinks together, and that's not happening. So we're trying to spend a little bit of time of just talking to each other and hearing how everyone's doing, mm-hmm. really trying to open up, you know, their lives too, and, and uh, trying to have some of those bonding moments. But it, it has shifted a little bit, but we're pretty adept to it at this point. Finally, Colin, what have you found to be the keys of being an effective leader in a crisis? And how do you see your leadership and maybe uh, the leadership of others in the sector changing in this post-COVID-19 world? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question because I think we won't know how effective our leadership is until we're kind of through the tunnel, right? I, I think for me, effective leadership right now is really listening asking a lot of questions and getting feedback from a variety of different lenses and people. I think having to show compassion to our team, to staff and the volunteers, as well, of course, to the people that we're serving and that compassion in real time, recognizing that they have a lot of anxiety that they're dealing with as well. But at the same time, moving quickly, making decisions, setting up timelines of when decisions are going to be made and then, and then just making, and then just making that and moving forward. I always joke that you know, nonprofits can be death by committee, of course, and we can certainly dive into the minutia of a conversation and ring that conversation over and over again. And we're very right good now, at we, that. We are really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just don't have a luxury of that time anymore. We have to, do the best we can with the information that we have and then move forward. And I think that that will probably be the hallmark of organizations that are still left standing at the end of this, this crisis. Yeah. It is interesting how speed has become a very highly valued value. I know that Gary Reedy of the American Cancer Society said mm-hmm. that he was making decisions now with about 50% of the information, something that he yeah. probably would have never done before. But you don't have the luxury of doing it. And you know what? You can make a bad decision and reverse it. But what you can't do is not make a decision. Because the decision is going to be made anyway without you. And it's better to have your input and guide it because things are going very quickly. So if um, people have a question or need help, or if they want to offer help and financially support the work of the ALS Association, what do they need to do? We would love for them to reach out to us. They can go to our website at ALSA dot org and they can contact us there they can see all of our information we have a national number and you can certainly send us an email so we are here we're available we have a a blog which i would 
also greatly encourage people to go to because there's a lot of good information there that can help people make decisions on their daily lives. So ALSA.org. That's the Fantastic. place to go. Well, Colin, Nate, I want to thank you for taking the time today to do this and share this information. Stay safe and be well. You too. Thank you for having me. Take care.